And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, Poetry, Prison, Two Lives. Judith Tannenbaum was a poet teaching at San Quentin Prison when she met Spoon Jackson, an inmate serving a life sentence. On paper, they couldn't have been more different. I'm 10 years older, he's black, I'm white, I'm a woman, he's a man, I'm Jewish, he's Christian. He grew up really poor, I grew up, you know, relatively privileged. But together they discovered a mutual love of writing and poetry and forged a deep friendship that's lasted 25 years. That relationship is the subject of their new memoir, By Heart. It's the story of two people divided by background, social status, and prison walls, but linked by art, affection, and spirit. I'll talk to both of them in the hour ahead. Stay tuned. Okay, first up today, Spoon Jackson. He's a writer, teacher, and published poet. Spoon has been in the California prison system since 1977, when he was 20 years old and was convicted on a murder charge. He was sentenced to life without parole. Today he resides in New Folsom State Prison. I couldn't get in to talk to him directly, so we had to make do with a series of calls from a prison payphone. And believe me, it's not the best way to do a radio interview. The sound is lousy, there's a constant beeping, there's a recording that breaks in from time to time to say this. This recorded call is from an inmate at a California correctional facility. And the calls are limited to a few minutes at a stretch. Not ideal, as I say, but for me it all came to seem like the audio equivalent of steel bars and razor wire and all those things that cleave the world inside prison from the world outside. So... I hope you'll take it like I do and think of it as ambience. I thought I'd have you start off here by reading the very, very first uh, paragraph in your memoir. This is a okay. chapter, chapter's called In Silence, and this yeah. is the very opening. Could you do that? Okay, this is from By Heart, In Silence. An Indian summer at San Quentin, and the sweet sun brings back the times I ran the dry river with the greyhound dog and lay under the heavy black railroad bridge as the trains rumbled across, shaking the soft sand. In those times, I watched the shadows of the rail cars dart by, and when night fell on a hot day, Clay kicked the can in pure desert darkness. There were no street lights on Cook Street when I was a boy. There you go. I'm going to read it, too, because, aloud, because uh, the phone line is so bad that I want to make sure people catch all the words. Okay. And I won't do it as well as you, but... Indian summer at San Quentin and the sweet sun brings back the times I ran the dry river with the greyhound dogs and lay under the heavy black railroad bridge as the trains rumbled across, shaking the soft sands. In those times I watched the shadows of the rail cars dart by and when night fell on a hot day played kick the can in pure desert darkness. There were no street lights on Crook Street when I was a boy. Yep. Crook Street is where you grew up. Yeah, River Bottom, Crook Street, yep. Old Dry River. Where was this exactly? Uh, in Barstow, California. What, what kind of place is Barstow? A uh, little one-horse town in the middle of the desert. They call it the heart of the high desert. In you know, hundred miles from, hundred some miles from Los Angeles, hundred some miles from Vegas, hundred some miles from Bakersfield. So right in the middle of the desert. What what kind of kid were you? Uh, a loner, shy and quiet. Spent a lot of time outdoors? Yeah, yeah, as much as I could. The environment uh, was conducive to that. There was, you know, nobody hardly locked their doors or nothing like that, and everybody ran up and down Cook Street, and, you know. <laughs> so the whole place was like home. When you think back to that time, um, I, I mean, is it pleasant? Is, are they pleasant thoughts? Yeah, they're mostly them are the ones you choose to remember. I don't think anyone want to sit and remember getting whipped with extension cards or getting paddlings or not getting any hugs or something like that as a kid. You know? That was all the case for you, though? Yeah. Whippings and lack of affection? Yeah, yeah more or less. Yeah. You have a, another um, poem 
about that period in your life, your childhood, mm-hmm. called back then? Yep. Back then, Cook Street, the rails, the fields, B hills sitting in the middle. The town carved around as the hills waste. Kicked the can on dark nights, hard to find the hidden. Back then, our eyes can open to see in darkness. One street light in the heart of Crooks. One store owned by folks who live somewhere else. One people who didn't know the world had passed them by. One people who didn't know the world beyond the purple and red clay mountains ran on a faster track. One people who believed in the same God that he stood only above and blessed Crook Street. One sky, but only on Crook Street. Someday there'll be another Crooks, but not here, but in another world. There will be Crook Streets everywhere where all children are everyone's children, where all people leave their hearts and minds open like windows and doors. Well, what, well, tell me more about what kind of kid you were. Uh, you know, in that opening paragraph of your, of your book, you know, the word that comes to mind for me is kind of dreamy. Well, I was the kind of used to be far off and watch everything. I used to try to watch people. I used to watch nature and just hang out. And I had a little spot along the river where I'd go hang out among the bushes and just lay down in, in the desert sands and stuff like that. And even when I was in the crowd, I'd try to, back up and be away from people. Hmm. Well, you mentioned that you, 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 there were real problems along with um, some pleasant memories from childhood. You were in trouble a lot in school from, from like a very young age. Yeah, yep. from the kindergarten when I got slapped by the kindergarten teacher I thought I loved. I, you know, I punched a boy who had punched me first, and I guess she didn't see it. But even if she did, she shouldn't have slapped me. I was too young to be slapped, I guess. You were in kindergarten, and yeah, I was five. I think you five in kindergarten. You loved this teacher, and she slapped you, and you still remember the shock of that. Yeah, each grade, I think I got some shock things that I remember. Some shock things. Yeah. Yep. Um, From being hit with rulers to paddlings, and you know, told that I would never graduate from you know from grade school, and you know, nothing but negative things that reinforced the negative aspects of my life of being you know that anything worthwhile doing was negative. Uh-huh. Bad. Don't have no conscience for it because nobody else seemed to have any conscience for what they were doing. Why? Why do you think you were perceived as like a bad apple um, by teachers? Why? Why all this discipline? What were you doing? I don't. I know in kindergarten when I punched that guy back, I got slapped. But in in uh, first grade, I don't even know. I don't even remember. I just know I was getting hit with the ruler and got my first paddling in that grade. It might have been getting in fights after that. So, so you think that you were doing some things unconsciously? The teachers just came down on you, you know, came down on you hard for, or uh, were they just were they just mad at you because you weren't talking much because you were quiet? Yeah, and... I, yeah a combination of both. Unless I'm suppressing something, uh-huh. I don't recall as a kid that young to be doing what I was doing that was wrong. Mm. But I know mm. I used to steal uh, candy and stuff from the store when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I stole my brother's boots one time. Abraham, and I was on my way to the store down in River Bottom, and I guess I got my karma because a big German Shepherd came out and bit me in the ass. <laughs> and he seen the dog coming. My brother Abraham seen the dog coming, and after the dog bit me, then he acted like he was trying to chase me away, and he told me, uh, matter of fact, since he was grown, that he said I was a badass. That's why he did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, grew up, you grew up pretty poor, though, um, in Barstow? Yeah, we were poor. Like one room shack, and you live in something like that initially. Yeah, you say poor. You said you had a one room shack. That one room shack, we was living in a cement shack. Before we moved from that shack up to the greenhouse, where the was a little better, but it was an old, old house. The white people had left that house to move somewhere else. But then we got to move up to that house, and that house burnt down one time, one day. How big was your family in that one room cement shack? Had to be about ten of us in there, because they had uh, two old raggedy trailers out that uh, a couple of older brothers lived in. And I think one of our brothers, Roosevelt, was off in the military somewhere. Hmm. By the time you got into high school or or late in high school, you were getting into more serious trouble. Yeah, I got kicked out. I got kicked out in in uh, as a freshman, I think it was in the ninth grade. What were you doing? Fighting. Fighting. 
Yep. And there were some other things going on, too, by, by your late teens? Yeah, yeah, I was doing drugs, all kinds of stuff. Yep. Stealing from everybody, anybody, and all that stuff. This recorded call is from an inmate at a California correctional facility. Spoon wasn't your given name, was it? Uh, yeah, one I gave me. You gave it to yourself? <laughs> uh, so what was your original name? Stanley. Stanley. So, so how did you come to be Spoon? Right after I got arrested. Right after you got arrested? Yeah, because he was dead, basically. Stanley was dead after that. Your old self died the day yeah. you got arrested. Yeah, everything was totally new and, and couldn't relate to any of it. So in a sense, that's what happened. I had never been, even seen a jail or anything before like that. I had nothing in my memories to relate to any of them. How did you pick Spoon? I don't know, it seemed like when I was 16, that's the name I was supposed to be. I remember that. I was in Barstow at a bus station, and I was just thinking of myself that way. But that was my name. You were just thinking of yourself that way when you were a teenager? Yeah. And so when you got arrested for, again, for the murder, is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And everything changed. You you dropped Stanley and, and, and took on that name you thought of for yourself. Ah, oh, and it stuck. Yeah. I see. So it, it was no no intended relationship to the word spoon. It was just a a feeling. Yeah, it just seemed like it was a natural thing. A sound. Like a natural process. It just seemed like it had to go that way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, another impression I got from reading the, the early parts of your memoir about your... Um, years before you got arrested and sent to prison, I, I really got a strong sense that you did not have a real well-developed sense of self at all. I mean, there's something sort of vague and um, I didn't, disconnected. Right? There's something really disconnected about your descriptions of yourself from childhood through, you know, through your teens. Yeah, it was. It, was, it didn't have no, I didn't have no success in school or in anything. I was just, it felt like I was just a robot. I didn't know myself at all of what I really wanted to do in life and nothing. And, uh, and, and that discovery of, of a self, who you were, it seemed like that came through your relationship to language. Yeah, it did. Because I, once I was at, I doing, going to trial, I, I didn't know what the DA or what the lawyer was talking about. That's another thing. I didn't know what none of them people were saying. So I didn't have any relationship with words, basically. With words? Yeah, I didn't have a relationship with words when I teenager when I first came to jail and when I saw during the trial all the words they were using and I had no idea what they were talking about. I told myself then that all I would do is just study words and figure out, never let them trap me. Oh. I never let words trap me again that I want to know what people are talking about or have some kind of idea because all they were doing was using words. They were stringing together in sentences and phrases and stuff like that, but they were using words. I mean, each word had a definition. If you don't have no idea of the definition of the words, you cannot understand what they're saying. Now, I should say, um, for the sake of listeners, that you've told me that you don't didn't dwell on the 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 murder, uh, the killing, and the trial in your book because you really wanted to make a point that there's much more to your life than that. And, and, and that, that one incident don't doesn't define who I am. That one moment was like one moment on Angel Dust. And you said there were some legal reasons. You didn't want to get into too much detail. No. But I, I didn't want it to, to feel like we're just totally avoiding it because uh, it's, you know, it's obviously something that, that people want to know. I to was guilty of the killing. I've already, I never denied that. You were guilty That's of the, the killing. killing. Yeah. And but it wasn't premeditated. It wasn't a forethought. It wasn't intentional or none of that stuff. They added ingredients that they shook on there to make it definitely qualified. It messed it up. I felt I should pay for what I did do. And I felt feel that I paid in full a couple of times what I've done. At what point do you think you had done enough time for that crime? Uh, I would say probably after 10 years. About 10 years? Yeah, about 10 years. This recorded call is from an inmate at a California correctional facility. So let's go back and, and continue talking about your relationship to words. Um, so when you were a kid, you were very quiet. You spend a lot yeah. of time in your own head, kind of, yeah. kind of detached. You didn't talk a lot. Um, no, I, no, I really, I was really shy. I didn't talk hardly any. Um, when I, when I read your, your, um, your memories uh, of being young, 
they seem like they're they're surfacing from from dreams and and now that we're talking about your lack of language it, it seems like what you had to do here is to reach back in your life to a time before you had words you had to find words for a time when you had no words yeah to describe those images if I had those images which probably just lead and all piled up inside myself that had no way of getting out like you said it was kind of like dream things like young and Adler used to talk about, you know, and different universal images and archetypes and stuff like that, and they had no way of getting out to the external world, in a sense, or to me, unless I had words, symbols, in order to express them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that words would be the symbol, symbol for letting that in, inner world out. Mm. And when I found out how language was, language was a huge you know, it just freed a, freed a huge part of myself. It freed, freed me up inside to you know, to really find out who I am and to be who I am. Do you think a kid like like you were? Uh, do you think that you were ready to to learn these things and, and you just didn't have a chance, or or does it sometimes take a trauma uh, and uh, for for these things to to, to sink in? Unfortunately, I, yeah, I think it did take a trauma. So I'm so sad that it had to be the trauma that happened in my case. But yes, and I think what's so traumatic about it is that you probably had to live a tragic life before the trauma even happened in the sense that opened you up. You know? Hmm. Or live a life that was just there. You weren't really accomplishing anything. Just a, yeah. hmm. uh, living. Not in a moment, but just living like a robot with no, a lot of stuff when I was doing, I had no feelings or thoughts about it, you know, like when you steal from somebody, I didn't think it actually hurt them. You just felt that they didn't deserve to have what they had and you had a right to take it. You didn't have much of a sense of your own self, much less anybody else's. No, you didn't, you didn't care. You think, well, everybody was taking stuff from you and you didn't have nothing. And, you know, that's what a weird thing, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, you weren't much of a talker growing up. No. But it, yeah. but it, once you I mean, got in prison, um, you actually gave up talking, uh, you know, almost completely, right? Yeah, I experimented with silence and, 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 and stuff like that going for weeks and, you know, as long as I could. Especially at San Quentin after we have a ride and stuff, they would lock you down and you get this single man cell. So I would just stay in there and didn't have nobody to talk to, and that was perfect for a while. Being on them long lockdowns, what got me going in my studies. If I had all the books I could study and ponder and read and, and somebody had gave me this wisdom book that was full of wise sayings and some poems and some great masterpiece writers and stuff like that, philosophers and psychologists and all that. And I didn't know at the time that some of it was poetry, but I was reading it and studying it every day for a few years. I can't remember exactly how many years, but that's all I did. And that's probably what, them words probably what led me to sign up for the poetry class unconsciously. Mm. But, but the time, by the time you got into that poetry class, you were still not talking very much. No, I wasn't just listening. It was better to listen. And this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly speaking to Spoon Jackson, coming to us from New Folsom State Prison. Spoon is the author of a new book, By Heart, co-written with Judah Tannenbaum, who we'll hear from later in the show. The book describes how they met in 1985, when Judith was teaching poetry at San Quentin, where Spoon was an inmate at the time. Spoon enrolled in Judith's poetry class, and that became a turning point in his life. I have this image. Uh, Tell me if this is right. Uh, You in this poetry class, sitting far off on the fringes, wearing wearing, uh, sunglasses, yeah? Yeah. Uh, Your head sort of tilted way back. Yeah. Uh, and your arms crossed, maybe. <laughs> yep, sometimes, exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think I've, I've, I've seen that guy in various places, too. And the assumption is, man, that guy's not, you know, he's he is not going along with the program. He is one tough customer, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at some point you opened your mouth and, and or you showed her your writing. And, uh, and, and when I was along with her and we would talk. And uh, we would do them diving sessions, and I would ask her questions, and she would try to answer them. And 
I would come up with poems and I would come up with things inside myself that I didn't even know existed and, you know, it was a blessing. She became my mentor and big sister and somebody that I believe in. It opened me up to a whole new different aspect of myself. When she was a teacher at San Quentin, mm-hmm. uh, you called it diving sessions. Yeah, yeah. Well, what did you mean by that? Well, we'd take a subject and I'd ask her a question and she'd go on with, you know, telling me about all of her knowledge on that particular subject. And then if I had any knowledge on it, we'd go as deep as we can with our hearts and souls and mind and explain it. And then usually out of those sessions, I would go back to the cell and end up writing a poem. Like a poem, uh, The Banquet came from one of those sessions like that. You don't have that with you, do you? I got. It. I tried to recite it yesterday on a visit and couldn't. But I, <laughs> <laughs> I was embarrassed. But yeah, I think I. I tried to recite it. I used to, I used to know it by heart. Uh huh. Try it right now. Try it. Let's yeah. Give it a try. The banquet, but only for a chosen few. There were no colors of the rainbow when it said that all people come from the same seed, the same batch of dirt, the same evolutionary cell. If so, if from the beginning we were one, there were no Africans, no Caucasians, no Asians, no race, no Christians, no Jews, no Muslims, no Catholics, no religion. What's changed to make us different? People of colors talking, a Jewish lady and an African man. There's a voice saying, come, Jewish lady, come back to the promised land. Can a man and woman of any color or religion be generous of heart, spirit, and mind? Do they not love and share as deep? We are all Africans, Caucasians, Asians. We are all Christians, Jews, Muslims, and Catholics. Where did this religion of separation come in, dressed in the facade of many religions? Uh, you remembered it. Yeah, that was the whole thing. I got it. <laughs> yeah, there was the people around that scared me. Yeah, I came from a diving session. Let me see. Is there, Judy, we were talking about the banquet they actually had there, a Jewish banquet. I used to go to all the banquets that I loved eating. It's named Banquet because there was a... It was a Jewish banquet. A so Jewish a banquet. Yeah, I had a friend at Clinton who was from Russia. He had a defected from Russia, and he was Jewish. He would invite, he invited me to the banquet. Oh, and... and this well, I actually did, so I discussed that issue of Jewish and black, you know, relations with Judith, you know, up there in, our, in the Arts Correction Office. And as a result of our discussion, that's where that poem came about. Uh-huh. So it was the actual event that I went to. And that's why I named it the banquet. Um, that that message of unity in that poem, um, and, and some of the other things we talked about, that's something that came to you after you went to prison. Is is that true, or did you already have those feelings? Yeah, I probably innately had those feelings, but wasn't aware of them. But no, that awareness didn't come to after my studies and after coming to prison. But nothing human is alien to anyone, so it was already inside me. My journey, my individual consciousness was already inside me. I just didn't know it. Um, I just hadn't tapped it. Well, you and I um, have talked about the fact that it was after you went to prison that you really discovered your um, your your gifts as a as a writer. Um, I woke up. Yeah. That you woke up. Um, yeah. That you um, really came to take possession of language and reading and writing and really got a, a strong sense of who you really were and could be and before that you didn't have that yeah i didn't have any meaning in life i didn't know who i was i was a dead man walking basically dead man walking before prison yeah before you committed the crime yeah. um so so the question i think some readers are going to ask is well in some strange way a good thing happened to you after you got sent to prison unfortunately yes you can look at it that way yeah, and they might say, well, isn't this a case of prison being the right thing? <laughs> well, like me, I take responsibility for the life I took, so therefore, for me, I had to do something to, in all my art and everything I do has got to be in response to paying for the life I took. That's the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. If, you know, some, I only can speak for myself. Some people who don't take responsibility for what they did, that's a whole different story. But I, you know, people I know, that in the arts take responsibility for it. You know, life without or whatever, take responsibility for the, the taking of life. You figure they owe the universe or owe that person a life. And that the, my life 
just being a vegetable and dying or committing suicide or something like that and living like an idiot or being a gangster or something like that would somehow not allow me to try to amend at least, uh, make amends for what I did do. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, I'm in prison several life, got over 30 years in, but I'm still alive. Um, Spoon, the, um, the poem you just recited, The Banquet? Yeah. Uh, hearing you recite, and, and again, I had the, the same impression um, hearing you recite other poems, you're obviously, you know, very, very good at delivering them. Um, and it's it's interesting to hear a guy who's who seems to be that adept at speaking uh, in a kind of public way uh, to know that you were once someone who barely talked at all for a time. Yeah. Well, like I said, I flunked every class on the streets, period. You what? I didn't pass any. I flunked all my classes in school. I didn't pass anything. English class, I had no way of, 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 of gauging that I could, words would become my life or anything, English or language, or that I would become a teacher's aide that helps people get uh, GEDs and, and specifically help them with English and language and writing. It's all like magic because I failed in miserably and all that stuff, miserably. And I didn't pick any of it up until I came to prison. But I didn't think I had the ability to do that. And I had to self-teach myself and then that I could, basically, and then getting all the schooling I could. And then Judith enabled me to see that uh, I was a poet. And from then, that's when my artistic stuff sort of took place. That's when I knew I was an artist. But prior to that, I was just trying to see, can I really learn that stuff? And I could. Well, well aside from um, discovering that you could write... How did you discover that you could um, speak so well as, you know, on top of that? Well, you were, well waiting for Godot. Waiting for Godot. Let's give a little background here. Um, in, in, it was in 1986 when Jan Janssen came to San Quentin? 87. 87. In 1987, the, the Swedish theater director Jan Janssen uh, came to, to San Quentin, where you were an inmate, and to stage a production of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. And this was... Um, this was historic in a number of ways. First of all, it was going to be a performance put on by all inmates. It was not an outside theater company coming in to perform it, which had happened before. Uh, and Jan had come with, with Beckett's blessing. He, he had gotten to know Beckett, and Beckett you know, was very much in favor of and supporting this effort. And you at that time, when Jan arrived, were barely talking. Um, Jan told me that you didn't talk at all, but I guess you had talked a little bit, but not a lot, right? Yeah, I wasn't basically talking in class, no. But from what John saw, he probably saw that I didn't talk. But he had read some of my poetry and stuff like that, so John offered me Pazzo at that time. This is the character Pazzo. Yeah, uh, so I could be Pazzo if I want to, but that he'd be back to audition people for all the other characters. Now, Pazzo is... T- describe the character Pazzo. Well, uh, he was a slave owner and... Uh, um, master of his domain, I guess, as far as uh, material things were going, and he was a wealthy person that bombastic and, and, and gave out orders and mean. He's cruel to this this character who is his baby. slave. He was a big baby, and he had a lucky who apparently was something else in another life because he he was saying that one of his characters, I can't remember. He said, guess who taught me all these wonderful things? My Lucky. If it wasn't for him, I would be such and such and such. <laughs> and Lucky is like a slave. Yeah. Lucky's this other yeah, character. And he couldn't even hardly speak. He's speaking nonsense syllables now. But he back in the, there was a time when Lucky taught lots of everything. Uh, let's back up, though, because you said something quite interesting. Um, you know, the way that you were cast as, as Pazzo, you were a guy who barely talked. Jan yeah. Janssen thought of you as a guy who was totally mute, you know, not talking at all. Yeah, he compared me to that big Indian in one floor of the cuckoo. Uh, the chief. Yeah, chief. <laughs> uh, are you are you as big as chief? Are you that t- that tall? And no, I'm not that big. <laughs> I ain't never seen him, but no, I don't think I'm that big. <laughs> Only about 215 pounds. So, so what was Jan t- thinking when he cast you, a guy who was almost completely silent, uh, in this role of a kind of loudmouth slave owner character? I guess he, he saw the actor in me. So got away. That's why I said he brilliant. He saw I had never acted a dream that I could be do stuff like that. And he just like when Judy saw the poet in me or felt the poet in me, Jan saw the actor, and and, and and he saw it in my poetry. I guess because of 
my poetry, he was able to see the actor, the artist. And I think the art, a lot of times, is connected on different levels, like poetry or songs or acting or singing or playing instruments sometimes. It's all kind of like there's a universal uh, wave up there that, as an artist, if you get yourself out of the way, you can tap into it. And you say that pl- that playing that role uh, and doing that play was part of how you came to be the the speaker that you are today. Yeah, the semi poems. Yeah, and, and to be able to recite the poems and, and that's when I started. That's when I started doing it in class. I finally started reading my poems, and, you know, and people said that's when I started talking. They said they wish I had shut up because so, I get to talking so much. But I, you know. Now, now you write about. Um, about waiting for Godot, uh, that you consider it one long masterpiece. I mean, that was your your impression yeah. right away as yeah. soon as you read it. Yeah, the language and the silence is perfect, I think. And the, the language that, that 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 you know, like any great writer or would use, has no big words. And every now and then he throw a word in like indefatigable. Just, but, but it fit it. And most of the language though was just you know, uh, simple painting pictures and simple. And that's the hardest language to write is to, to be. Simple and not simplistic, but simple. Where anybody could just read it and understand something about it. Either they're gonna hate waiting for the door, or they're gonna, you know, love it and feel it. But there's something in it if you read it or it's meant to be seen. When you see it, something's gonna touch you, gonna touch a part of your soul. There seems to be this special relationship between uh, that play, Waiting for Godot, and some of Beckett's other work. And and prison. I mean, uh, Jan yeah. was putting on those plays in Swedish prisons. Yeah, there. I know, in Norway, too. He's doing it right now. Uh-huh. And, and then, of course, there was a very famous uh, production of, of Waiting for Godot in San Quentin in the 1950s by yeah. uh, a troupe that came in and performed. Uh, yeah, I've heard about that one, yeah. Yeah, we that... Did, we started ours that about 30 years later, was it, 87? Yeah. yeah, yours was about 30 years later than that, yeah. Um, but anyway, what, what do you think that relationship is? What is it that... that um, makes those plays so appropriate for the prison environment. Well, for us, as lifers, when they, when they talk about waiting for Godot and Godot never shows up, it's like a lifer waiting to go to the board and nothing ever happens. There's a timelessness and the, the nothingness and, and able to relate to waiting for something that don't happen. Well, you know, I would think of endless waiting as maybe, you know, I mean, a kind of torture. Yeah, it is. You know, nothing happens. Nobody comes. Nobody goes. That's what happened at the board. You go there, but really, nobody goes. They never let nobody out, hardly or anybody, and nothing happens. You're talking about the per- you're talking about the parole board. The board, but he was he wasn't talking specifically about the prison board. But what he said was apropos and fit perfectly for the board in prison, where it just sit there, just an ornament that's there, and they don't do anything to let people out. They not there. They already have in their minds that they're not going to let you out. And you're waiting for Godot, and Godot is not going to show up. So it seems like a meaningless exercise to go... Yes, they're they making it as much as possible a meaningless exercise. It's like, uh, what do we do now that we are here? What do we do now that we are well, The kind of life without parole I had, I was under the old new law type thing. Well, I went to the board after 12 years, actually. You went they to... Run, I actually went to the board. They was actually running it. I went to the board here. Matter of fact, on this yard, back in ninety. And the deputy commissioner of the board told me that I didn't have enough time in then for them to recommend me for clemency. But then he went on to talk about Oscar Wilde, and he looked and seen that I was a published writer and that I was waiting for the door. He said, why don't you write your way out of prison? And I don't know, that doesn't mean nothing to me, because how do you do that? Yeah. It's judging. Yeah. What's good enough to let somebody out of prison? But that's what he told me. He said, only many reasons, you know, he said, I didn't have enough time in. And then they just... After that, they said, well, you come back in three years. And I was at CMC after that. But when three years was up, then they told, well, we couldn't off your board hearing for life without uh, further notice. And that was about 1993, uh, and I haven't heard nothing since. So, so 93 was the last time you officially had a chance to take your case before the prison board that could... Oh, 90. 90 was. 1990. I was supposed to go back in 93, but they I abolished see. it. Okay, so... But then they changed the law. So, so tw- twenty years ago was the last time you had a, a shot at it. Yeah, well, that's, I think that's more than twenty. You sure? Well, it's two thousand ten, so that, that's oh, twenty years. Yeah. Yeah, twenty years. Yeah, long. Yeah, that's a long time. It is a long time. So, my question is then: 
it, that kind of waiting can be, uh, you know, t- a torment, you know? So, yeah. so what did you do to adapt after that? I, I just lived my life and, uh, and live in the moment because, if, you know, I keep trying to meet people through the mail or through whatever and keep trying to mentor youngsters and older people and get mentored by people and share wisdom and knowledge and love and not let this situation kill me while I'm still alive because that's what they want, and I'm not going to allow it to happen. Mm. Like I said in the book, I'll get out of this by a beautiful real death or a beautiful real life. Either way, I'm going to be fine because there's no sense in trying over something you can't do nothing about. You, know? uh, you just uh, echoed a line from the final passage of, of your memoir, and I was wondering if you, you could read that last paragraph. Okay. Forging my path in life is a melancholic mixture of wonder and sadness. I am not happy, nor will I be happy in prison. All I can say is what my character Apostle said in lines Judith, Jim, Denise, Jan, often quoted during our development of the play, Waiting for the Dope. That's how it is on this bitch of an earth. I will be released from prison one day by a beautiful real life or by a beautiful real death. In either case, I have found my niche in life, which is something not even death can take away. A, a beautiful real life or a beautiful real death? Yeah. If you got a life sentence or whatever, how much time you got to do, you got to send your work out into the world or tell people about it because all we got at this moment. Well, well uh, Spoon, thank you so much for this, um, this time. It's been my pleasure. Spoon Jackson. He's the author of two poetry collections, Longer Ago and No Distance Between Two Points, and the new memoir, By Heart, co-written by Judith Tannenbaum, who I'll be speaking to next. Judith Tannenbaum is a widely published poet with numerous collections to her credit. For four years, from 1985 to 1989, she taught poetry as part of the Arts and Corrections program at San Quentin, where she met Spoon. She wrote about those experiences at San Quentin in her book, Disguised as a Poem, published in 2000, and she takes them up again in the new book, By Heart. I asked her what attracted her to writing a two-person memoir this time around. To me, it is our differences that make the whole story the most interesting. I'm 10 years older, he's black, I'm white, I'm a woman, he's a man, I'm Jewish, he's Christian, he grew up really poor, I grew up you know, relatively privileged. My life is quite free. He's serving life without. So in terms of factual details, our lives could not be more different. I just felt that it was inherently interesting to see two such completely different life experiences, mine where everything in the world really encouraged me to be the whatever, the most I could be and stuff, and spoons where there was so much discouragement. Uh, you, you, You named a number of contrasts there. Mm-hmm. your backgrounds. But the one that, you know, I think is first and foremost uh, throughout the book is the most unavoidable of all. He ended up in prison. You ended up living life as a free person. Right. Free, at least in quotes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the only way that word can ever be used. But uh, the contrast of living the life outside and the life inside is, is so stark. Mm-hmm. And all the things that it imposes on a person, or those two two different states impose on a person. You made a comment uh, about how your background seemed to lead to a life of freedom, and his background seemed to lead in the other direction. Mm-hmm. In fact, you say later in, in the book, um, after a life of teaching in schools and in prisons, right. you've become convinced that some people are trained as students for lives of accomplishment and lives of... Um, of sort of self-determination, and others are trained for incarceration? Right, right. How are kids trained for prison, or trained and wind up in prison? Um, How have you seen that? I mean, the way that it's, I feel that the most strongly has to do with kids who have a sense that there is a place for them in the world. And that, and that is not only like, okay, there are going to be jobs for you. You can get into college and there are jobs, which is kind of what the Obama administration is focused on, but it, which is relevant. But it's not only that. It is also that even you, just who you are right now as this five-year-old or four-year-old or 10-year-old, your life, 
there's a place for you in this world and who you are and what your experiences are matter. I mean, Spoon writes about it extensively. I mean, for him, it was even more dramatic because I, he, he went to school, he presents himself as this child who had a lot of curiosity and imagination and had a lot of capacity to just pay attention to the physical natural world. And pretty quickly was turned completely turned off and but the process for and the process for him had a lot to do with physical abuse really in school with being beaten and paddled and everything and that of course doesn't occur so much i mean i don't see that that in the schools that i go to but there's some emotional equivalent often this book by heart is um in some ways the story of two paths to prison that's true <laughs> Tell me about your path to okay. prison, okay? The daughter of a college professor. Yes. Yeah, a well-off Jewish family in Los Angeles. Right. Um, right. Could anyone have said early in your life, she's going to end up spending a lot of her time in prison? <laughs> I mean, really, it was art that took me to prison. I had a friend who had just begun teaching in the education department at the prison in Tehachapi. And he asked me and another friend who, who did kind of poetry performance to come in and just share our work with his students and with other uh, prisoners there. So we went in for one day and just said poems to a lot of uh, men in prison. And it was one of the most powerful experiences in my life because of the response of the men. And the response was like that these poems actually had the power to sustain them, which when I was doing this reading and performance, you know, in whatever, in cafes and bookstores, that it was more people loved the poems, people whatever, but it was more like responding to entertainment. There were so many things somebody could do that night, and this is what they did. Whereas poems for me had were like bread too. They really saved my life in, you know, in emotional ways at, at many moments. And so it was that shared response to poetry, in this case, art in general. You're saying, in a way, that um, you probably never expected this, but you found kindred spirits in prison. Exactly. And realizing that this was the writer's community that I had always dreamed about. This is the story that I don't think the public is even vaguely aware of, that some of the people who volunteer in prison aren't just selfless heroes trudging into the most horrible place on earth for the good of their fellow human right. beings, they actually are finding really, really gratifying experiences and connections in this place. Yeah, I, I've just come back from a conference in, in um, Michigan with, with one of the best prison arts programs called Prison Creative Arts Project that's out of the University of Michigan. And you know, I have these colleagues who are doing prison arts in a number of states, all with different kinds of programs. And and the ones who do this work for a long time, especially, it's it's exactly what you're stating. Our lives are so enriched and deepened and, you know, through this experience. But I also want to respond to, because like you were talking about volunteer, you know, and I didn't volunteer. This was a paid job. And I think that's important to know. I feel like it's important that artists are also people who need to earn a living and that there are programs that pay people to do that job, that work. And especially now that Arts and Corrections, the program that I did work through at San Quentin, has just been dismantled with almost all programming in California prisons. I think it's even more important to note that. Right. I misused the word volunteer. What I... I think I was trying to say is that people who choose to go there who don't have to go there. Right, right, right. I mean, you could have taught elsewhere. Right. What year did you start teaching poetry at San Quentin? 1985. 85. So it was about a year later that you met uh, Spoon Jackson? No, Spoon was in class, not the very beginning, but within a few weeks. Okay, so he was one of your first students. Right. But he wasn't like the other students. Right. Tell me about his place in the classroom. Well, Spoon um, would walk into the room, into the classroom. He would pick up the chairs, about half a dozen chairs, and he would take them to the doorway and he'd make a half circle of chairs and he would sit in, the, in that half circle surrounded by the chairs. And he paid attention, but he said almost nothing 
And that first year, I think maybe I saw one or two poems that he wrote. But that seemed okay to me. Um, I could tell he was paying attention. He showed up every week. So none of it bothered me. None of it scared me. None, none of it seemed problematic. But it made me curious. It made me really curious about who he was. When I when the grant started and I was able to be at the prison more hours a week, I, I added an element of where I met with students individually. And Spoon was the first student I met with because I was so curious about what was he getting. And that's how By Heart starts, is with that individual consultation told first from my point of view and then Spoon's. What what did he say during that first real conversation? Well, he met me went be- upstairs before we even walked down to the room, and just it was a very warm September day, and he said, "90 degrees hotter, I'd be warm," which was already shocking to me, both as a statement because I was like so hot from the weather, and also I don't think that I had heard a sentence that long from Spoon, and you know, in the previous whatever it was, nine months or a year, and then. I, since I had no idea what he was getting from the class, I had just come to this individual consultation with a lot of material that I figured I could share with him. But he brought 50, 60 pages of poems, poem starts, things that he had been working on, and he had that to show me. Then he talked to me about where he grew up, which was Barstow, which is the de- ha- ha- the heart of the high desert, which was very warm. So that led him into talking a lot about his childhood. Maybe not a lot, but talking about his childhood and where he grew up. And as I say, I had never really heard him speak more than a sentence or two. And I loved the way he was speaking. And so I knew even as he was talking to me that I was going to go home and type up what he said and bring it back to him so that he could see that just how he was speaking had a lot of what a poem is. And and that's a way that I teach I just overhear something somebody says. I mean, it must be like your work when you're listening so intently, <laughs> you know. And um, and okay, that phrase has the has the has the energy of what po- a poem is, you know. And then just give it back to the person. He had gone from this mysterious guy who said almost nothing, and as far as you knew, didn't write very much, right. to a person with a history, with a life, and fifty to sixty pages of poems. Yeah, you know, like poem starts, lines, things that were, I mean, there was nothing at that point Mm. that either he or I felt was, oh my God, this is a poem, you know. But but it certainly had taken into account everything that we had talked about in class. Yes, 50 or 60 pages. Well, there was a point after that that you Mm -hmm. describe in the book where he comes out with what I guess is his first fully formed poem in the class. Right. Tell me about that and maybe, maybe read the poem if you have it handy. Sure. So it was about three months later, after that first individual consultation, I was in the the education building and Spoon just walked up to me and just handed me a piece of paper and then walked away. And, um, And I was doing whatever I was doing. And then I took the paper out and I read the poem that I'll read to you in a minute. And I started crying because it was such, it was a poem. It was like this beautiful poem. Um... So I'll read the poem, and then I'll, I'll say a little bit more about my response. So the poem is called No Beauty in Cell Bars. Restless, unable to sleep, keys, bars, guns being racked, year after year, endless echoes of steel kissing steel, noise, constant yelling, nothing said, vegetating faces, lost faces, dusted faces, a lifer, a dreamer, tomorrow's a dream, yesterday's a memory, both a passing of a cloud. How I long for the silence of a raindrop falling gently to earth, the magnificence of a rose blooming into its many hues of color, the brilliance of a rainbow when it sweetly lights up the sky after a pounding rainfall. Picnics in a rich green meadow. We saw the beauty in butterflies. We made it our symbol. Tiny grains of sand, one hourglass, a tear that may engender a waterfall. The memories, the dreams are now. Love is now. There's no beauty in cell bars. 
And what I felt when I read the poem was that I was witnessing a birth. I felt it wasn't only, oh, this is a good poem. It was the person who wrote this poem now knows something about himself Mm. that he didn't know Mm. before. And that's certainly what made me cry, not just the beauty of the words. And, um, and I've had so many one amazing students, both in prison and schools in my life, but I've never had that experience before, where somebody was kind of waking up to him, his own self or herself, and calling in the world. Mm. Spoon writes about his early life, and uh, he and I have been talking about this too, as having been sort of half conscious, right, and not having much language, and 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 that means more than I can say, but. Um, he says he graduated high school with barely a sixth grade reading level. He was very quiet. He didn't talk a lot. Um, he'd maybe read one or two books. Right. Um, and he certainly didn't write. And at some point in prison, and partly through your class, you know, coming to to own language. Right. And all that means. And a self. Yeah, it's an amazing, I mean, it's such a moving, amazing story. And you know, the way he writes it is like pre-prison, he only spoke the way his father spoke to him, which were kind of in one-word sentences, grunts, shrugs. But it was when he was on trial and he started hearing these words from lawyers and judges that he didn't know at all what they meant. And he realized that his life, his fate was going to be decided by words that he didn't know the meaning of that he started to take the dictionary and try to learn those words. So his first impulse toward language was was both literal, to know the lit- actual meaning of words, and also based on power and who had power and who was going to take power from him. So language um, as power, you say, in the circumstances of a courtroom, where if you don't master the language, you're at the mercy of right. events. Um is, what's the relationship between poetry and power? In, <laughs> and in your life, for instance. In my life? Yeah. I'm pausing so much because, I mean, like I don't think of those words together. I know so people so don't talk that way. I know. Okay, so I have to really like ponder this, as Spoon would say. <laughs> ponder is one of Spoon's words. Um, but, you know, I do think really that being able to have poems by heart, <laughs> memorizing poems, saying poems, gave me, in my own just body, a certain kind of, not power over anything, but power of expression or something that, so that kind of power is certainly connected to poetry for me. Not, as I say, less the poems on the page or something, and more the actual physical saying Mm. of poems. A lot of people on the outside, the world beyond Mm -hmm. prison walls, who never, ever go to prisons, Mm -hmm. who probably see prisons only in very, very distorted and exaggerated representations in movies and TV shows, you know, project a lot of ideas onto them. Tell me about the differences you've discovered between the prison as it exists and the imagination of the public in prison in real life. So it seems to me mostly people on the outside who have no relationship to prison or people in prison think of people in prison either as monsters who are just evil or some people think of them as saints. And really people inside are just human beings like everybody else. And that seems the hardest thing to convey to people on the outside, that we're all just people, you know? And as Spoon puts it, you know, we all have one foot in light and one foot in darkness, which is, you know, kind of one of my favorite expressions of that reality. And um, and what when, when Disguised came out... The, this is Disguised as a Poem. Disguised as a Poem, which is the memoir I wrote 10 years ago that about the years teaching at San Quentin. I was asked almost every time I did a reading or an interview, you know, how did my students change? And that question really surprised me because I never thought that my job was to change anybody. And I wanted to address the question, and I thought a lot about how I was going to do it. So what I ended up doing was asking whoever was asking me that question or the audience to remember the worst thing that they had ever done 
And then to imagine that that one worst act is the only thing that you're known for and that you're put into a situation in which everything about the situation is designed based on the assumption that you're going to do that one worst thing again, that you have, the world has to be protected from you doing that one worst thing, and that that's really what prison is. I mean, that really is how we design prison. And then what I was, a- what I was able to do there was I was given a room that could have a different set of assumptions where the, my students could enter the room and I could enter the room not with only the worst thing that we had ever done, but with the full range of our characteristics and acts. So, of course, in that room, a lot more came out that was positive because more could go into the room that was positive. There are places where people can go and be something other than just an inmate. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I want to remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. In this part of the show, I'm talking to the poet Judith Tannenbaum about the time she spent teaching in San Quentin State Prison and the memoir she's written with one of her students there, Spoon Jackson. It's called By Heart. There's this rule there at, at when you're working in the prison against... Over-familiarity. Over-familiarity, right. yeah. So right. ideally, you're supposed to keep quite a bit of distance between yourself right. and the students you're right. dealing with, the inmates. Right. That's kind of impossible, I would think, if you're there a long time and really care about what you're doing. Right. I mean, that was certainly one of the... When I talked about paradox and being at San Quentin teaching me about paradox um that's one of the main particulars of that was how do you be in a place four years sharing with people and and keep those keep to the rules and also even more interestingly I think for me anyway was how do you share art poetry which has to come from deep human well you're sharing your life yeah. You know, when you do that. Exactly. And you're visiting these guys on in their, they don't want to call it their home. Prison isn't their no, home. right. But you're visiting them where they live. Right. Where they're housed. As they where they're say. housed. Yeah. But you're going into their world. Right. How, how do you hold that? With as much respect as I can, I guess, you know. Um, recognizing that I'm visiting an existing world that... And especially the longer I was there, recognize the more I did know, realizing the, how much I didn't know mm-hmm. and couldn't know and mm-hmm. would never know, and um, about the kind of dynamics that, that need to operate there, and finding more peace, because I am a really curious person, finding more peace with the fact that it wasn't mine to know. Mm. Um, so all of those, all of that. Yeah. And you're a woman, of course, and it's an right. all-male world at right. these all-male prisons. Which is another barrier uh, or line that you were constantly very hard, right? And 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 you know some of those ways are just obvious. I mean, about going in the cell block and being you know catcalls and all that kind of stuff, and how you work with that. I mean, that's just I think anybody would just imagine that. Mm. I mean that that one's like I say pretty predictable. But what is it when you're the one who's off a woman in the role of offering sustenance in an environment where there is none? how the men felt often that they could express feeling in the in the presence of a woman that they couldn't necessarily express with each other. And then whole realms that I don't, knew nothing about. Actually, one of our prison bosses said to me at one point, you know, some you ha- in order to stay here and work here, you have to accept that something could happen on the yard. Someone could even be killed. And it would be about you, but you wouldn't have had anything to do in creating that. Mm. Um, that be about was you heavy. in the sense that that somebody was protecting my honor I mean something again mm. like that I wouldn't all the realms in which what it meant my being a woman there meant mm. to the men and um, that was a pretty heavy one Yeah, a, a lot of people must want to know what you knew about these men and their crimes Right. you don't talk about that at all right that, for most people outside, I think is the main focus, right? What did they do? Right. Um, that's not for, first and foremost in your mind at all, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think I do write about it a little bit in By Heart, and I wrote about it a lot in Disguised of, of the thing of, it was just 
a fact. I mean, my students were all serving some kind of life sentence. So it was a fact that most of them had at least been convicted of murder. Over time, I learned the complexity of what that means, you know, um, of what even the idea of just murdering means. Um, you mean the whole range of circumstances? The whole range of circumstances that you can be convicted of murder and not ever have killed anybody. You might be on the scene. Yeah, you're on the scene. or um, But I mean, I knew that they had at least been convicted of murder. So it was almost like a given, the place of just starting from most of my students have probably caused tremendous harm to another person. So it was a first just fact that I had to accept, recognize, accept, and make some kind of I don't know if peace with is the work, but acknowledge that that's, that's one of the realities in the room here. But it, it didn't arise for me as something that I had to keep dwelling on. Um, and it never disappeared. I mean, I guess that's part of what I was saying before about, I mean, there, for so many people, they're either monsters or saints. They were neither of that for me. I mean, I knew that fact. And then I came to know all these other facts of these other qualities of what they had there you know, sweetness and humor and, and curiosity and intelligence and all of those things. And so it was like I had to keep just getting bigger to let my spirit get bigger, to let all of those facts be true at the same time. And it, and and this is what I say about living with paradox, that it wasn't like as I got to know their sweetness and humor and kindness, that made the fact that they had harmed somebody disappear. It was just they were all true at the same time. What are your thoughts now after all that experience, after all those years of living amidst those facts <laughs> and doing your best to live with all of them right. um, about crime and punishment? Oh, my goodness. What a big question. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think we don't know what we're not. We don't even know what we're doing about punishment. We aren't even having a conversation where we're trying to say what that means. I mean, are we trying to re rehabilitate in quotes? Are we trying to to punish? Are we trying to um, say we're sorry that your young life was so you know terrible? What are we? What are we? What is it even? What is the reason for any of this? So it's very hard to have a conversation about what should we do when we don't aren't starting from a a, a definition of what what our purpose is. One of the, maybe this is the wrong word, but it seems to me heartbreaking parts of working with and getting close to some of the students you had at places like San Quentin is that the prison system is constantly ripping them out of a life they're getting used to and transferring them out to other places. And this can happen at any time. The prison system here in California and elsewhere, I'm sure, is always undergoing political shifts there's always reclassifications of prisons, and so people can be there and be settling in, and then suddenly they're transferred to a completely different prison with no programs, no teaching, nothing. And this happened to Spoon. It happened to many of the men. And there's something just so sad when you see lives that are beginning to come together just sort of uprooted this way. And it put me in mind of a, a, a section of your book where you, you refer to another prison teacher who wrote his own memoir, Richard Shelton. Would you read me that part of your book? Sure. Richard Shelton began sharing poetry in Arizona prisons in the early 1970s. His beautiful memoir, Crossing the Yard, 30 Years as a Prison Volunteer, closes at the end of a workshop in which nearly all of his students report that they're going to be transferred, many of them to private prisons in other states, where there will be no support for the good work they have been doing. They're being transferred, as Spoon was from San Quentin, for no sensible reason at all, and there's nothing Shelton can do to stop it. The last line of Crossing the Yard says better than I've ever heard said what my prison arts friends and colleagues feel when we speak to each other of what we've experienced and witnessed. I want to put my head down on the table in front of me and weep with a pain that will not be comforted, and a rage I cannot express. And that sums up the way you feel sometimes? That says it absolutely, absolutely. Like, you want to express, you know, you've asked me so many good questions, and, so, and they're in questions about not only what prison is like, but what should we do about prison? And really, the deepest, truest responses are crying and raging. 
Well, Judith, uh, thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Judith Tannenbaum. She'll be reading from her book, By Heart, written with Spoon Jackson at the Capitola Book Cafe, Monday, May 10th at 7.30 p.m. That's the Capitola Book Cafe, Monday, May 10th at 7.30 p.m. And finally today, I thought I'd play one more excerpt from my conversations with Spoon Jackson. This is the very last question I asked him before our time ran out and the prison payphone cut us off. You know, after talking to you um, in a number of conversations, hearing about your your life, uh, you know, starting out as a as a quiet, um, detached kid, being a guy who was very quiet in prison for a long time, didn't talk much, thoughtful, a reader, a writer, um, and here you are in this this tightly packed environment, you know, side by side with so many other people. Um, there's like no privacy there. You have one hundred twenty seconds left on this call. No privacy, brother. There's like like no privacy there in prison. I mean, yeah. how, how do you how do you cope with that? I'm going deep inside myself, and disappearing into inside myself into other worlds, into books, and pondering things. That's why finally that set me free. Because when you close your eyes and, and ponder, you you're part of the universe. You're no longer limited by your body, as far as I'm concerned. So freedom inside. Yeah, and it takes you out way. Like my geese friends left, they took off and flew away. I flew away with them. You had some geese in the prison yard there. That... Yeah, it was raised as babies from egg. We had to watch them. I watched them grow and befriended them and everything. I had to see them fly away. When did they fly away? About seven days ago, they flew away. Oh. They had been here a long time. I watched them grow, grow from a little, you know, one of those goslings. And that is all for this edition of the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week.